Right. Let's take a moment to pay homage to the infinitely virtuous one, to the magnificent one, to the undefeated one, to the greatest teacher we've ever had, the Supreme Buddha. Namo tasse bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasse Namo tasse bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasse Namo tasse bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasse Someone had a question. Someone had a question they came and asked me last week at the end of the sermon. And I think it would be good for me to share that the answer I gave that person with all of you. So someone came and asked me <clears throat> about something she does and she asked me if it was how it sits with this Buddhist practice and uh, efforts to get to Nibbana whether it was right for her to do something like that. What do you think I must be talking about? Oh. She asked me about business. Making money. Becoming successful. working on improving your business, your profession, job, whatever, working harder, working better, working to earn more, and working to make your, your business, your enterprise more successful, from success to success. So the question she had was, is it okay to do something like that? In fact, she was, she had some preconceptions, preconceptions, which I gathered from the way she put the question to me. So when she asked me the question, and, and I'm ever so grateful that she asked the question because it's because of her you get to hear the answer to that question today. I had the I, it implied that she thought there was something wrong about it. How so? She asked me, Swami Nohansa, is it okay to work on improving my business, making more money, if I'm doing it for someone else? I'm not doing it for myself, Swami Nohansa. I'm doing it for others. I'm doing it for the people who depend 
on the success of this business. Is it okay if I do it for that purpose? So I presume that that was how she made it feel all that what she was doing was okay by justifying that she was doing it for others. So before we talk about whether we need that kind of justification, let me ask you the question. If you are in business, say you're a tradesman, or you had a shop, some kind of uh, enterprise, and you were able to make money, you were gifted with that skill, perhaps you are a good salesman, you can talk to people, you can give a good talk, and people are convinced. How does that sit with Buddhism? How does that sit with Buddhist practice? Do you think it's fundamentally wrong to do something like that? Hmm? What did the Buddha say was wrong to do? Exactly. He spoke of the unmeritorious deeds. Yeah, and he said, Sabba Papa Sakarana. Refrain from all unmeritorious deeds, from all that is vile, from all evilness. So there were 10 things that he outlined, and he said, Refrain from these 10 things. Whatever you do, if what you're doing, is intended in one of those unmeritorious deeds. No matter how much good you do, what you're doing is wrong. I'm talking about intention here. It may be that you say you your business is that of a say you're a you're a hunter. You hunt animals, okay? And using your, through your skills, you, you hunt, you collect the carcasses, and then you, you feed people. What do you think about that business? Hmm? Yes. That is not acceptable. Of course, it may be that what you hunt you then go on and give to others, and that's, that is meritorious. But the way you go about it, that is wrong, because you have killed. So killing, when done intentionally, is bad without question. There is nothing to discuss, debate, or argue about that. Good question. What if you have no choice? Can you give me an example like that, Pada? Yes, good question. So the whole family depends on this 
hunter-gatherer, hmm? on this on the father of the family who's a who's a hunter. That's all he knows. He doesn't know any other trade or skill. So as the as Buddha says, then they have no choice. What then? Then he said, okay. What do you think, Buddha? If someone kills you because they have no choice, <laughs> what do you think about that? Still wrong, huh? So you see? What's wrong is wrong because the intention is wrong. If you have no choice but to steal, you've not learned any trade, you don't have any other skills, you've not learned anything, right? And the only way that you can feed your family is by stealing. Is that okay? Hmm? If someone stole from you because they had no choice, would you be okay with that? Huh? No. Have choice or no choice? If stealing is done intentionally, then that is wrong. So I don't need to spell out all ten of them. I think most, if not all of you, will know them. The point is this. Buddhism has nothing against you becoming successful in whatever profession, trade or business that you have engaged yourselves in. In fact, I want all of you to be as successful as you can possibly become in whichever trade, profession you might be in. Whether you're an engineer or a doctor or a salesman, an entrepreneur, whatever, become as successful as you can be. I ask you to do that for more than one reason. One, most importantly, because when people like yourselves become successful, people who are good-hearted, people who have a good base, a good founding in the Dhamma, when people like you become successful, who benefit? Who benefits? Of course, everyone benefits. Everyone benefits. When you gain, the rich and poor, they both gain. When you are successful, good people, bad people, they all become successful. You can help other people and you can become, you can be examples to other people. I wouldn't want anyone to think that practicing the Dhamma means you have to give up on making good effort to become successful in life. So say you're a student and you're currently you know, in education, you're learning, studying for your exams. Do the best you can do. Saying you're a Buddhist is not an excuse. Sometimes parents may have this conundrum with their children. Sometimes they may say, but, 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 I mean, I, I want to ordain. 
Hmm? Oh, I want to attain Nibbana. So why should I, why should I study hard? Why should I do my exams? What's the point? No, that's besides the point. Working hard, having a good conscience, they have nothing against each other. So whatever profession you're in, whatever you're engaged in, whatever activity you're up to, do the best that you can do. If you're in business, I want you to be the most successful businessman or businesswoman that we have ever seen, especially you. Because what I do know is that you will not use the proceeds of your business to hurt or harm other people. Therefore, shouldn't you be as successful as success can be? Yeah? Yeah? So, when the lady asked me the question, I answered, Madam, I want you to be as successful as successful can be. I want you to work hard, not just for others, but for yourself as well. Because the more you have, the more you can help other people have. The more you have, the more you can guide and support other people, as well as yourself. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, so let's get the record straight. Whatever venture you might find yourselves in, please understand that your devotion, your piety to Buddhism, has nothing to do with how successful you can be in your lay lives, in doing whatever you're up to. There is only one thing I ask of you. Every action you take, every word you say, every thought that you, you have, ask yourself the question, what is your intention? Because intention is everything. Intention is everything. If your intention is to do good, then stop at nothing. Go ahead. There's a right and a wrong way of doing things. So it would help if you go about doing things the right way. And that is why we learn. That's why we educate ourselves. That's why we seek association of people who know more and better than we do. So they help us to maneuver ourselves and navigate our efforts in the right manner. But please don't let, don't hamper your progress in the name of Buddhism. That is a discredit and a dishonor to Buddhism. I should never find you saying, I stopped working hard because I'm a good Buddhist. The two things make no sense. There's no connection between the two. Okay? Yes. What the good gentleman is saying is, it's difficult to become successful. In today's day and age, it's difficult to become successful without actually intentionally doing something that, is, that may be immoral. That I agree. That is your problem. Of course, right? Success means different things to different people, right? Yeah. But 
to a, to every buddhist success must you know they, they have some com- something common about what success means because if buddhism is ultimately about ending suffering then that has to be a common goal among all of us yeah whether you're a lay person or a member of the clergy it matters not we must all share one common goal that is success means by what degree we have managed to free ourselves from suffering yeah would you agree with me on that okay so whatever you do whatever course of action you take that puts you into suffering cannot define steps that you have taken towards success whatever you do if it puts you on the path to freeing yourself from suffering however slow and time taking it might be that will that can be defined as something on the path to success that is the definition of a buddhist now in addition to buddhists you will be other things as well right you are all buddhists but in addition to buddhists you will be something else as well like you'll be a teacher you can be a successful teacher you can be a successful engineer you can be a successful mechanic you can be a successful hunter can't you you can be a successful hunter but then you'll say but how can i be a good buddhist and a good hunter whenever you're not hunting you're a good buddhist <coughs> say say you're out in out in the jungle you're hunting right and uh, you see a deer and a baby deer right the goodness of your heart does not allow you to hunt the baby but you should be the adult deer now on one occasion you were a good buddhist in the other instance you were a good hunter so you're asking me how can you be both at the same time as i said that is your problem <laughs> and i gr- completely agree with the gentleman as i'm sure you will all have the same similar sentiments to add right how can you be successful in this world when most of the things you have to do require you to engage in something immoral something unjust something that seems unfair to somebody else and yes i agree and it's getting more and more difficult so that comes to the second part of my answer to the good lady when she asked me the question if at some point madam you decide to leave your world life behind and say perhaps become an anagarika or if you decide to go come into ropes at that point i will give you a different story at that point i'm not going to say you can be a good buddhist and be successful in your career at that point i will say leave behind everything because in relation in 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 comparison to the alternative everything else is a measure of unsuccessfulness but let's admit it it's not fair or reasonable for for me to expect all of you to at the drop of a hat right become an anagarika anagarika or go, go into robes if i ask you to do that would you all do that now 
Hmm? You good? Good. Some of you may be able to. Some of you may not be able to. Some of you may be. You know, there there'll be maybe perhaps age. Hmm? Yeah. But there'll be others who, although we are ready to accept you, you are not ready to come. And unfortunately, the majority of you are like that. That may be big, big, perhaps, you know, because you have other duties, responsibilities, obligations, and so on. Right? So, whilst you are in your lay lives, I have something to say. And if at one point you decide to leave your lay lives and come and ordain or come into the sasana, then I will have something slightly different to say. Because wherever you are, I want you to be successful. So, the only piece of advice I can give you as lay individuals, make sure that you have a good intention because a good, a good intentions or a good conscience is a soft pillow. You will struggle to, if, if you do something that makes it difficult for you to shut your eyes at night and sleep easy, then it may be that your intentions were not were not pure, were not good. So, whilst you are involved and engaged in whatever profession you're in, do the best you can do. I have not condoned the unmeritorious deeds or being unjust to someone or being unfair. That is not what I have said. Let's get that, <laughs> let's make sure that, that you've got that straight, right? But at the same time, if what you're doing is reasonable, if what you're doing is fair, if what you're doing is not wrong by the other person, then there is nothing that should stop you from becoming successful. So for example, if you're buying and selling, if you're selling something at a fair price to someone who needs it, that is not an unmeritorious deed. But you say, but I'm taking their money. Surely that's wrong. No, who says taking something is wrong? So I come and take arms from you, is that wrong? Hmm? Taking something is not wrong. Taking something when it's not given to you, that's wrong. Taking something by force, taking something against someone's wish, against someone's will, taking something that does not belong to you, that is wrong. Then you'll ask the question, then, well, Swami what about if someone borrows something from me or from my business and they have not paid me back? Now can I call the debtors or the debt collectors Right? And if I send them round to their homes and I get them to get my, get what they owe me, is that wrong? You understand the predicament? Yeah? Is that wrong? What do you think? I'm going to let you all answer that question on your own. You understand the, the, the example? Yeah? So say you've borrowed some money from me and you promised to pay me back. I've tried several times to get it and I've asked from you and you're not giving it. You have no, it doesn't seem like you're interested in returning my money, but I need the money for my business. So I ring up the debt collectors and I get someone to come around and, you know, talk to you nicely. <laughs> Right? And to collect the money that you owe me. 
and you're not willing to give it to me, you have decided that it's yours, okay? But you are forced to give it to me. What do you think about that? Have I done something right or have I done something wrong? Let me put it this way. As a monk, I'll, I'll put it that way. So it's, you know, I want to play this safe, right? As a monk, okay, if say for instance, you took something that belonged to me. Let's say you took this fan, you took this, and you, you now claim that this is yours. I can come and ask you to return it to me. So I say, Madam, please can I have my fan back? And she says, no. I've decided to keep it for myself. At that point, if I snatch it from you, that is considered a parajika offense, meaning I'm no longer a member of the Sangha if I do that. Because if you have decided that something belongs to you, then I no longer have the right to reclaim it. And it doesn't matter even if you decide that this robe is yours. If you snatch it from me and then I ask, please, can I have my... All I can do is ask you nicely, <laughs> quite literally. I don't, I, I don't have the right to take it back from you by force. That is the nature of the sasana. Now, you'll ask me, but Swami Nasa, is that practical? You know, can we apply that into our lay lives? And if, if, that, if we were to all to do that, then, you know, how would, how would the, the country function? How would the economy function? You know, how would people would lose their sanity? People would just come and take willy-nilly whatever they wanted. And how would we how would be able to do business? Yes, I agree. I agree. But... Again, that's your problem. <laughs> so I can't say that monkhood or coming to the sasana and being a lay person are equally supportive to your nibbana. That would be wrong for me to say that. In which case you would have to question me, well, why did you become a monk in the first place then? If at all possible, choose this life. I say this with conviction. If at all possible, choose the life of monkhood. At least an anagarika or an anagarika, if at all possible. If life is so kind to you, if it gives you just, the, just one opportunity to do that, choose it without a second thought, without batting an eyelid. Choose that option. Because it will accelerate your journey to Nibbana. But if circumstances are such that you are unable to make that choice, if circumstances are unkind to you, then you have to make the best of what you have. Yes or no? You have to make the best of what you have. And in making the best of what you have, the best advice I can give you is make sure that your intentions are pure. On some occasions, you will have to forego on some things that are dear and precious to you, some things that are valuable to you. 
you will have you will face these situations in life where you have to decide between two things nibbana or my wealth nibbana or my property nibbana or my relationship you're in a relationship with someone someone else decides that they want to snatch your partner they have decided that they like your partner and they want to be with your partner now you you have a you have come to a a problem you have to decide at this point nibbana or relationship see at these points you will have to make your own minds up and then live with the consequences the only thing i can help you do is help further your understanding of the dhamma so that gradually you begin to realize that anything that you fight for which is not your nibbana is not truly a source of happiness for you that i can talk to you until the cows come home i can help convince that to you until the very end there'll be times in life as i'm sure you'll find yourselves in where you have to make these tough choices and they are tough boy oh boy and they tough and they tough they tough they tough as tough can be my children on ibana my husband on ibana my job on ibana the thing is you have made this choice so many times over time and time again this is not a new choice you've made this choice plenty times before how do we know how do we know today you are still making that choice that's how we know you are still making that choice you are still facing that conundrum of course yeah i mean at the end you know when life comes to an end right then you have no choice at that point you have to choose whether you know your is your son your your child or death at that point all choices are gone you only have to there's actually it's not a choice after that is it there's no choice there's no choice but you feel when it comes to nibbana yeah there's a choice when it comes to nibbana there's a choice when it comes to death there's no choice so you will face these situations and as i say all i can do is i can help you to understand that whatever pursuits you go after in life they're not really anything that is of any substantial value if you listen to guru swami nanak's sermon from last week and i think the one before that on the poor day he asked you this question you know if there's something that you want is going after the answer to it hmm if you there's something you want is going after the answer to it if you go after something you'll get what you want see wanting something and not having something are two different problems they're not one and the same if you get what you want now you have solved the problem of not having what you want but it does not solve the wanting what you want problem am i making myself clear there are two problems 
I want something, I don't have something. They're not one and the same. If you go and get what you want, that does not solve the I want something problem. It only solves the I don't have what I want problem. Because I want something problem is not solved by getting it. It's still there, even after you've gotten it. We discussed two problems. One is wanting something. Two is not having what you want, right? Going after and getting what you want is only going to solve one of these problems, which is not having what you want. It does not solve the problem of wanting something. Relieving yourself of vexation when you need something is not an answer because you're back into that vexation every time you do it. You know that loss will only be replaced by fear. Or grief will only be replaced by fear. If in trying to solve one problem, you're only putting yourselves in another problem, what have you really gained by doing it? Nothing. Nothing. This is why we need to make sure when we make these choices that matter to us in our lives, folks, we have to make these choices wisely and intelligently. You know, we can... Say things that make us feel okay for the time being. We can say that, you know, I have to do this because I have a family. I have to do this because I need to make a living. I have to do this because I need to put a meal on, my, on, the, on, on the table every night, right? You can come up with these reasons for doing things. But at the end of the day, none of these things matter. At the end of the day, none of these things matter. If it's your intentions that count, if you've done things with the wrong intention, then the consequences will come to bite you. And at that point, it will not matter not whether you've done it for your children, whether you've done it for the country, whether you've done it for your parents, it will matter not. Because remember, although we feel that we are doing all these things for other people, at the end of the day, there is really no one for us to be doing them for. These are simply feelings that we have in our mind. You feel that you're doing something for your children, right? I, you know of all people how much parents sacrifice their lives for their children. You know, you as a parent will know how much sacrifice you have made on behalf of your children. From the day they were born to the present day, all the things you've done on their behalf. Good things and bad things. At the end of the day, if you've done good things, then you will enjoy their rewards. If you've done bad things, then you will have to suffer the consequences. So then your children cannot come and save you. Your children can't come and step in when you have to suffer the consequences of bad things you might have done in their interest. If you've lied, if you've stolen, if you've hurt someone to save your child, they can't step in and say, well, mother, you did this for me. So let me step in and I'll take the consequences of your actions. Can they do that? Can they? No. Who's that? Who will? The children? Yeah. 
He's, <laughs> he's good. Parents, watch out. <laughs> he won't do it. <laughs> and they won't do it, yeah. They won't do it. Some of them might want to, but they still might, they, you know, they won't do it. You know, if, 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 the, if the children feel, you know, that our parents have done this on our behalf, then perhaps I need to go and, you know, take the stick for what they have done on my behalf. Even if you wanted to, you still couldn't do it because that's not the way it works. So if you have to take home with you whatever it is you've done at the end of the day, folks, you know, at the end of the day, you're all alone. As much as you feel that you are family, you have friends, you have your wife, your husband to look after and take care of you, these are all simply, well, let, to put it straightforward to you, are delusions. No such thing has ever happened. No one was there to look after you. No one was there to really take, take, you know, to, to take care of you. Your actions have determined what you enjoy today. Your actions have determined what you suffer today. We simply fool ourselves by thinking that there are other people who will be there to protect us, to look after us. But that is, not, that is simply not the truth. In which case, don't you feel that we must all take a little bit more responsibility? about our own actions because we have to ultimately suffer the, their consequences. You know, I know some parents, they, they engage in immoral deeds. And when asked why they do that, perhaps they take bribes when asked why they do that, they'll say, it's because I can then feed my children. Intentionally, they know what they're doing is wrong. They'll say, I want to do this because I want to look after, feed my children, give them a good education. And it may be that the children will get a good education, but who's going to suffer as a result of what they've done? The parent. And the children can do nothing to stop them from suffering. So I propose that each and every one of you, whether you are a child today, an adult today, a parent today, or a parent tomorrow, you all take responsibility for your future. Because when the day of judgment comes, no one's going to be able to step in and save you. It is your actions that will determine the results. It is your actions that will determine the consequences. Therefore, live a life that you will not need to look back and regret. Some might think, well, is this not being selfish, Swami Nansen? You know, if I just think about myself and I don't think about my children, if I don't think about my family, is that not me not being selfish? If, as you say, I dedicate my, li my life to the Dhamma, right? and then I listen to the Dhamma, I practice meditation, I, you know, I don't go to work, and I do all these things, I, is, that, is that fair? Is that, is that the right thing for me to do? Am I being responsible? What do you think? 
What is bad is things that you do with bad intention. That is what I said right at the beginning. This is why I added right at the start of this talk, working hard to become successful is not a bad thing. So you, you, you don't need to come up with excuses for that. Okay, that's good. But what I'm saying is, if you, have, if you find yourself doing something that you know is bad, that you know that the Buddha has admonished, that you know that the Buddha has said was wrong and evil to do, then don't do them. No matter who you do them for. Of all people, you need to know this. Then don't do them. If you have to save, to save your child, if you have to kill someone else, what do you think you should do? These are tough questions, aren't they? These are really tough questions, I know. You know, for parents in the house, they'll be incredibly tough questions. And you hope you'll never find yourself in those situations. You know, you have to save someone's life, either your son's life or a stranger's life. One or the other. If you save one, you're going to have to sacrifice the other. Which one would you choose at that time? You know, as parents, these, these are situations that you wish and pray you will never find yourselves in. But what if you do? How do you make the right choice? How do you make the right choice? What if you actually have to kill to save your child's life? Ask yourself the question, would you? I don't need your answers here. Yeah? I want you to answer for yourselves. These are rhetoric questions. If you had to save, if you had to kill to ch save your child's life, would you? If you had to steal to save your child's life, would you? Would you? Where would you draw the line? The only thing I can do is to help you understand that this thing that you call your child is simply a feeling that you have in your mind. Two people, one, you know, two children, right? One you think is your child, the other you think is not your child. One you feel is your child, the other you feel is not your child. If you had swapped the two of them in the hospital, then you would have thought of the other one the same way. Right? That is how much this, this feeling, this sense of a child can be. It's simply what you believe is right. So, in the event that you have to make that choice, how would you make that decision? The only refuge you have is the Dhamma. The only refuge you have is the Dhamma. My point is this. You may find yourselves in situations where you have to make these decisions and ultimately you're the ones, you're the ones who will have to suffer the consequences of that as well. Therefore, every opportunity you get in this life, while you're here, while you can still hear, make every effort to understand the truth of Dhamma. This is why I try to explain to you that who we really are are simply a mind and a body. Anything beyond that 
are simply fragments of your own imagination. When you feel that your son, your child is special and different to someone, some other child, this is simply your mind playing tricks on you. Biologically, yes, there is such a thing as a mother and child. That's a biological connection. I'm talking about how you, how you sense them. Because all there is is a mind and body. And biologically, there is such a thing as someone's mother. So this is a biological connection, right? So when you, if you were to kill someone and that someone ended up being your mother, that is a heinous sin. That, that, that is, you don't need biological science or medical science to, to explain that. Buddhism can explain that because there is that connection truly does exist. We are not talking about that biological connection here. What we are talking about is how you sense that other person. You know that your child is special to you, don't you? Your child is special to you. Your husband is special to you. Your wife is special to you. Your friend is special to you. Your partner is special to you. There will have been a time in your life where those people were not special to you. And let's just put the child and mother-father relationship to, to one side for a second. There will have been a time in your life where, say, your partner, your husband, your wife, they were not special people to you. They came into your life at some point, you know, in your life. They didn't, they, you know, they're not biological. They're not biological connections. But today, as you think of them, you feel that there is someone special there. That is something that another person does not sense. Meaning, it's a fabrication of your own mind. And for that fabrication, on that account, you're willing to even do unmeritorious deeds. How does that make sense? For something that you fabricate in your mind, you're willing to suffer consequences of unmeritorious deeds that you do and you say are done on their behalf. You know, that's like getting into a fight with someone on behalf of an imaginary friend. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like getting into a fight with someone on behalf of an imaginary friend. Would you do that? Would you? For an imaginary friend? Would you fight with your real friend to save an imaginary friend? So someone, you know, your friend insults an imaginary friend. Only a, you know, only a kid would do something like that. Someone who, who feels so strongly and so fiercely about this imaginary friend. But, you know, as adults, you wouldn't do something like that. Mature people wouldn't do something like that. But the truth is, they do. The truth is, they do. When you feel this special connection with someone, now you're willing to do lots of things. You, you know, how, how many times do people actually get into fights with their parents? Because, of, because, of, because they can't give up you know, their, their, their affection for someone they have just found in their life. Girlfriends, boyfriends, you know, how much they, they get into, you know, they, they get together and sometimes, you know, they are, they are 
more than willing to hurt their parents, sometimes even, you know, go as far as killing them. They'll do that on behalf of this someone that they've found in their life. It's kind of like getting into a fight with a real friend to save an imaginary friend. I need you to understand that you need to be more responsible about the actions you take in your life. Because ultimately, whatever actions you take, you will have to suffer the, their consequences. You are here today because you made unwise choices in the past. I don't mean here as in, in the monastery. I mean you're here, you're having to come to the monastery. You're having to be here today. You're, you're, you are alive today. You're human beings today. You're sentient beings today because of poor choices that we made in the past. And the same goes for me as well. We were able to make a better alternative choice, but we didn't. We made the wrong choices and therefore we are here today. And in this life, we've, we've had to go through everything from start to end. Think about your childhood, right? You had to go through so much to get to where you are today. You know, every time you have to start, we have to start from square one, right? It's like a game of snake and ladders. However far you go, it doesn't matter. If you hit one of those snakes, it'll bring you all the way back to one. And then you gotta start again. Now, who's here? who here is willing to go back to grade one? Would you better? Hmm? Sir, would you? Would you go back and start all the way from grade one? Learn how to tie your shoelaces again? Would you? Learn how to mix your food with your fingers again? Do you want to do that? Really? Do you want to get measles again? Do you want to be potty trained again? You know, it, it's not happening soon enough for your children, is what you're saying. Right? Now imagine if you had to go through it again, and you will. Doesn't that send a shiver down your spine? I mean, what are you now? Hmm? If you are all headed for a natural death, right? By the time you're 60, 70, right? It's counting down, right? So you know before long, you'll have to learn everything again from scratch. Isn't that thought daunting enough? Just the fact that you have to go through scholarship exams again? Just the fact that you have to go through all the heartaches again? All the breakups again? If you've been through a divorce, you know what it was like. Just the fact that you'll have to go through that again. All because of the choices that we make now. So, you know, when you put all that to a side, how do you justify Making the right, making the wrong decisions, making the wrong choices, and you say, I'm doing this on behalf of my family. I'm doing this on behalf of my children. When you're going to have to come back to pay the price, 
I think we should be, we should think about ourselves more responsibly. You know, please don't think that you're being selfish in doing this because after all, you know, all we are is what we do to ourselves. No one can save you from someone else. No one can save you from yourself. Only you can save you from yourself. As I said, at the end of the day, we're all individuals. We're all alone in this game. Although it feels like we've got everyone around us, right? We've got everyone to look after us. We've got the Swami Nuances to preach to us, right? We've got our friends to look after us. We've got our parents to dote on us, right? And our families to feed us and all that. At the end of the day, you know, these are all things that we tell ourselves to make us feel, feel better. When we are feeling lonely, these are simply stories that we relate to ourselves so that we feel better. But we are all alone. We are all alone. We are all so alone. What you do, madam, is yours. I can't help that. What you do, sir, is yours. I can't help that. Sir. Yes, good question. Remember, when we talk about separation, ultimately they are both one and the same thing. So I'll help you figure out the connection between the two. When we talk about separation, we are talking about a feeling of separation. Remember, nothing is actually separate. Yeah? Nothing is separate. It's only a feeling of separation. Oh, in fact, someone came and asked me the other day a really good question. They asked me, when we separate, when we, when we try and separate, what do we separate from what? That's a good question, isn't it? What do we separate from what? Does the question make sense to you? So, you know, say these are pens, right? There's a black pen here. There's a blue pen here. Right now, I can separate the black pen from the blue pen. Separate, right? So, in the same way, this person asks me, what do we separate from what? <clears throat> you can only answer that question if you start on the basis that things are already separate. No? Only if two things are separate can you answer the question. Separate what from what? Because if nothing was separate in the first place, that question itself is baseless. I'll talk more about that later. I, I mentioned this because I, I wanted to talk to you about it. And in case I forget it in, the, in maybe a future sermon, please remind me. Okay, perhaps in next, next week's talk. We'll continue and discuss more about it. I want to answer the gentleman's question before we conclude. I'm I'm, I, I've just explained to you that we are all alone in this. We are all alone in this. But we cannot separate. Chittas. Who are you? Chittas, mind and body, right? So, if, what do I mean by mind? These are chittas which arise and pass away. In that sense, are you different from each other? So what are you, madam? 
mind and body. And how about you, madam? Mind and body. How about you, sir? Dur, mind and body. Right? Mind and body, mind and body, mind and body, and so on. So, if we all take all of us together, there's simply a lot of mass. I'd say we, we were to, you know, put all of all of you together, there'd be a room full of mass, and there would be individual streams of chitta arising and passing away. That in that sense, you're all the same. Now, say, you know, the gentleman, if I asked you, sir, what's your name? You'll have an answer to that question. Who gave that answer? A chitta gave that answer, right? But is that the name of a chitta? Does a chitta have a name? We discussed last week why a chitta comes into this world. What is chitta's business? Those five things, right? Minding its own business. To mind its own business, which is to report what it has just perceived, does it need a name? No. But you call yourselves by a name, don't you? You say, my name is this, my name is that. This name that we give ourselves is not an attribute of a chitta. So, two minds, one says, I am this person, the other says, one says, I'm Charlie, the other says, I'm Rob, for instance. How are there Charlies and Robs when there's only mind and mass? Now you see, in these two objects, you have the constituent elements that make this. You have, say, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, you know, various other elements that make this up, right? If you were to dismantle this and disintegrate this into their constituent elements, you'd be able to put them all into one container, maybe separated by element, but even elements at the end are what? Atoms. And atoms are again electrons, protons, and neutrons. So if you were to again separate it by protons, neutrons, and electrons, now you'll only have three different containers. But yet, we, even further, we know that this is all the pure octet. Or you could consider that all energy is convertible to mass, and all mass is convertible to energy, and then in the end, it's all just energy, <laughs> right? So then you'd all put it, you'd put it all into one box. So you see, it's all the same. Now going back to the mind, the mind arises in order to, to perform its function, which we talked about the five things, the, the, mi the mind's business, right? So the mind performs its business, the mind in that body, the mind in that body, that body, this body, the other body, everybody. The mind in each of these bodies are performing the same, the same function. But because of ignorance, the mind feels that it is separate to somebody else or to another mind. And therefore, it starts, it starts to call itself by various names. That's why, you know, you, you know very well, folks, when I, when, I, when I call you by your name, it's not the body that I'm referring to. Right? That's why you respond to it. You say yes. And now if I call you by your name, you'll say yes. And you know that that is your mind that has just answered this question. I mean, who else? It has to be either the body or the mind. You know that the body does not respond to a name. It's the mind that responds to a name. And the mind feels that this is my name, doesn't it? How does the mind get the right to call itself a name? It's simply an attribute that has been given to it. 
How did you know that your name was what? Whatever name you have. You asked someone, didn't you? You asked your parents, what's my name? If that was your name, why did you have to ask someone? Meaning, it's just something that you have decided to call yourself. So, you're all the same. What are you all then? Mind and body. Body is simply vipaka. And so is the mind. Mind is also vipaka. But in this vipaka process, there is an additional process that is the karma process. And that karma process runs because of ignorance. And that karma process, because of ignorance, feels that it's separate from each other. That separation is not real. That's why you can't answer the question, what do you separate from what? I know I haven't done justice to that, but I'll talk about it again next week. Okay, please remind me in case I forget. So when I start, you know, what do we talk about? Remind me, we talked about this, so we can continue that discussion. Okay, what can you separate from what is, an, is a question we need to try and find an answer to. What do you separate from what? Like, you know, when you use a sieve to uh, you know, put your flour through it, you know, you can, you can separate, say, the, the bigger granules from the smaller ones. Whenever you separate something, you always have the, question, the answer to the question, right? What do you separate from what? The thing is, it's a delusion. You never separated anything from anything because there were no two separate things to separate in the first place. It's simply a sense that you get that you separate things, but we'll come on to that later. But each mind, when it performs karma through ignorance, generates vipaka. So why were you born in this birth? Because of karma. Whose karma? Whose karma? Not whose karma, karma. You are simply a stream of thoughts. Okay, so these thoughts, right, at some point you were born in this birth, yeah, you came into your mother's womb and say that was there. Say previous to that you were a deva. Okay, and say previous to that you were, I don't know, monkey. Right? Along the way, this, this, was, this is a stream of thoughts. Each thought individual. Each thought individual. This, these are all chittas. And they have, they have a nature, which is what we call the gati. Each of these, because of ignorance, can, they have the potential to perform karma. Without ignorance, no karma. With ignorance, there is, there is karma. And whenever karma happens, then there's an energy that is generated which produces vipaka. Which produces vipaka. That vipaka comes back to manifest as another chitta. It can either be mind or it can also be matter. So all of this is vipaka. This is vipaka. Your body is vipaka. But it is this karma, not the chitta, the karma that happened in the chitta that generated the energy for vipaka. And that vipaka now comes back, either as a, another chitta. So remember the chittas are due to what we talked about, you know, the five sense doors and the five, uh, five sensations that come through them. These are all vipaka, right? They're all produced by this vipaka energy. This vipaka energy was generated because of karma. Now, how are we all the same and how are we all the different? Are all different? 
We are all the same because this is the same thing that happens in all these minds. That's why I'm able to preach the same sermon to all of you because it's the same problem in every mind. It's the karma that makes you feel that you're separate. It's the karma that generates this vipaka, which there is nothing separate in this world. Uh, I'm trying to think of an analogy to explain this. And I'm fighting against the clock. Uh, let's put it this way. I, I, just want to, I just want you to walk away with the answer to the question the gentleman asked earlier. Because yeah, I said we're all alone. And it's a very good question. Well, if you're all alone, then you say, and I'm saying we're not separate. But alone and, and not separate, how does the two of them, you know, how do you reconcile the two of them, right? I'll, I'll briefly answer that question. And then because I, to, to go into another point of Dhamma to explain that is not the right thing to do right now. So we'll do that next week. Please remind me to do it. Because this is all chittas, you understand that the same process happens in all of you. Right now, as you sat there, chittas are rising and passing away. Yeah. And because of ignorance and attachment, karma happens. That karmic energy generates vipaka. That vipaka comes back at some point as sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. It can come back as eye, ear, nose, tongue, body. And it can also come back as thoughts. Okay, this is all vipaka, right? So remember when I said we are all alone in this world, our actions determine our consequences. What, I'm, what I meant there was the karma that is generated determines the vipaka that comes back. This does not mean that there is only one chitta that is responsible for everything. So take two individuals, for example, one is Sam, another is Tom. Sam is also both mind and body. And so is Tom. Tom is also mind and body. So that is also something like this. No different. Sam's body, or let's say, let's say Sam's body. Sam's body was a product of his vipaka. Meaning vipaka that was generated at some point in this stream. It could have been a previous birth. It could have been many births before that. Okay? At some point in this mental stream, there was enough vipaka energy to create his body, which is the body that Sam calls his body today. What about Tom? Same thing. Not Sam's vipaka, but Tom's vipaka. So what happened was this mental stream at some point generated karma, which there was karma there because of ignorance, that generated vipaka, and through that energy, today Tom has a body. Tom hears things. Sam hears things. Just one more second, madam. Tom uh, sees things. Sam hears things. They are individual vipaka. Individual aggregates of vipaka which bear fruit for individual streams of thought. Why, why did I say we are all alone? It's because each stream is independent. This stream does not influence this stream. 
this stream is not responsible for this stream. So you could say that Tom is Sam's son, for instance, as you say today, uh, this is my son, Swami Nasa, should I not look after him and take care of him and, and you know, uh, do whatever I can do to, to keep, give him a, a, good, good, a, a good future. The thing is this, whatever Sam does, is Vipaka Sam's going to get back. Whatever Tom does, is Vipaka Tom's going to get back. So it matters not that Sam does it on behalf of Tom. The Vipakas are only going to come back to, to this guy. If he does it, it comes back to him. If he does it, it comes back to him. He might say, I'm doing it for him, matters not. He'll say, I'm doing it for him, matters not. What you do is yours. That is what I meant by that we are all alone in this world. But what did I mean by we can't be separated? What I meant by we can't be separated is the same thing going on here. This is the same thing. This energy, which is once Tom, was once Sam. It's the same energy. Like, for example, I mean, we talked about the apple on one of the one of the sermons, right? The apple you eat today could be a pumpkin that someone else had another day. Because it's the same stuff. It just keeps going round in a cycle. And when things go round in a cycle, you can never say that it belongs to one thing or the other thing. Because it belongs to the universe. It belongs to everything. It's, it's, it's a cyclical process. At any given point in time, you could say that it is part of a particular product or a particular item. But it's not, it's to keep. It's not, you know, it's not forever. It's not something that is forever part of an entity. It can be part of anything. So the Vedana today that is in this mind can be the Sankara today that's in this mind tomorrow. Because it's all part of the same energy. Now, your question, madam? Yes. 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 It it comes back to the same series of chitta. So that's what I'm saying. If this is one person, madam, right? If this is if this is you, this is the karma jarahana. Oh, this is the chitta jarahana. I mean, There is a karma jarahana, right? And it generates, it generates chittas one after the other in succession, right? And that exists. So, for instance, things that I have done in the past will be part of my karma jarahana. Those things will not come to affect you. Yes. Yes. What he meant by that, what he, what he means to say is, it's not a person who has it. Okay, it doesn't belong to a person. It's, it's something that is, it belongs to a, a series of chittas. So there's a vipaka stream. There, whilst there's a vipaka stream, because of ignorance, the mind feels that this belongs to me. So there is no such thing as my vipaka or my karma. But there is vipaka and there is karma. 
and the the karmadurahana that he explained such a thing exists so if you know if there are say what 50 people in this room there are 50 of them and if there are ants in this room say 100 of them now we have 150 of them if there's a fly somewhere on the wall then there's 151 of them all unique individual strands of karma and each strand of karma will be responsible for for generating the vipaka which will either be ma- mind or matter and you have namagotha energy yes and the namagotha energy will be accessible to that particular stream of course you know we, we can access other namagotha streams as well that, that is through uh, improved uh, spiritual you know powers and capacity so say for example the buddha would be able to access any namagotha a pool of namagotha right so other people you know more or less they are able to do that but there is such a thing as a a karmic strand so this karmic strand is going to be different to this karmic strand now if you are a family for instance let's say there are uh, three of you at home mother father and and and, and child there's going to be three karmic karmic strands and at every moment one of these instances of karma will mature and they will bear fruit so this can be a sound this can be a smell this could be a taste then so if if this is the point of reference right then as soon as this one goes down the next one comes up and the truth is though you know it's not like they they come in in order you know it's just like a a pool of things so whenever the environment is right the right one just pops that's the way it works so it's not like they come in in this series it's not a series like, as such whenever the environment is ready the the most appropriate uh, instance of karma takes uh, takes fruition okay but this this so whichever one takes fruition we can say they are now part of the karmic strand so these karmic strands they are there you know if there are 8 billion people in this world then there are 8 billion karmic strands for every sentient being even for an arahant there's a karmic strand in other words this there's a flow of energy there's a there's a direction of energy a flow of energy or a direction of energy and that that stream of energy is what is responsible for producing the vipaka that we see that could be sight sound smell taste touch eye ear nose tongue body and when the two of them collide you have the chittas right uh chakkunja patichu rupeja upajiti chakku vinya all three of these are vipaka and that vipaka is a result of the karmic strand so right now there's a you know each of your karmic strands are colliding with mine that's why as i'm saying these things all of you are able to hear it but if you are at home then as much as there might be karmic strand uh, there may there might be instances of karma in the karmic strand to hear my voice you it wouldn't be maturing today today it's maturing because there's the right environment for those uh we need to find the words for these things now <laughs> karmic strand is fine for karma jarana he calls them uh, karma jabija right yeah, i suppose yes seeds okay so karmic seeds i don't know what people on when i got karmic seeds where do you get them from the agriculture store 
right? So, so the, each of these are, are individual karmic strands, right? And seeds mature, okay? And what, we, what manifests in the world around us are those instances. Now, are you clear on what I meant by we are all alone in this world? Hmm? Are you clear by that? We are all alone in this world because each of these are individual karmic strands. When you do something, if that is your karmic strand, then your actions will go and settle in your karmic strand. It's not going to go and settle in someone else's. So therefore, it matters not why you do something or who you do it on behalf. It doesn't go and transfer to someone else's karmic strand. So if this is you, this is your son, right? This is you, this is your son. You've now killed an animal to save your son, where do you think this is going to go and settle? It's going to come and settle here. So who's going to have to die at some point, painfully, because of you having killed on behalf of this person? You. That's my point. You've done this on behalf of this person. That has nothing to do with what's going on. Sir? Yes, of course, because when, when, when karmic strands start to appear to, together, the environment is, is altered. And therefore, different, different karmic strands can, they can influence each other indirectly by creating a different environment. So, you know, when two people are together, the things that they speak will be different if there was a third person there, right? So that way, what, which karmic seeds mature can be influenced by which karmic strands come together. That's why you'll have, you know, you'll, you'll remember the story of how, uh, I think Guru Swami Nase says in one of his sermons, uh, two friends, they, they, uh, they went somewhere, they, uh, they killed an, a dog, okay? And then once they went, uh, they, went, they went to the sea, they got on a boat, and, but on the, on, the way, on, on, on the way to the trip, they, they took a third friend with them. They took a, so what they, the way they killed the dog was they actually went and threw the dog in the water. Right? And so the animal suffocated to death. And, but when they went on a trip, they took a third friend with them who hadn't been involved in that, in that misdeed. And so whilst what could have happened was the boat to have capsized and the, and the two of them to have suffered by drowning. It didn't happen because of the third friend. So what, what's going on there? Another karmic strand. Another karmic strand getting in the way. Remember I talked about how we need to create the environment for other people. We talked about this last week, right? How we can be a magnet for other people's good deeds. This is what I meant by that. We can be a force, a powerful positive force on other people. We can be a good influence on other people. Because the more good we do, the less bad things will happen when we are around. That's how you can be a blessed one. When you do good deeds, when you are a good person, then fewer bad things will happen when you are around. Therefore, your presence is a blessing to other people. So the better you become, the, the, the more good you do, the more, you, the more good you are to your family, to your friends, to your spouses, and so on. Therefore, it's, it's, it's such a powerful thing to be around good people because good things will start to happen. And it's a terrible thing to be around bad people. 
Because then bad things will start to happen. If you hang around someone who's always robbing, right, stealing and, you know, looting, then one of these days you're going to get called to the police. And when the police come, they're going to take you with them. And you'll, you'll plead innocence. They'll beat you until you say, yes, you've done it. <laughs> but that beating was something, it was, it was in your karmic uh, strand from uh, previously. You hadn't beaten anyone in this birth, but it was there. But because you associated someone who was bad, when the beating came to them, you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> so this wrong place, wrong time business has something, you know, you can explain it through this karmic strands uh, theory. So wrong place, wrong time means the <coughs> karmic seeds that you're not in favor of, they can come to fruition if you hang around the wrong people. Does that make sense? So aren't we all alone? We are all alone. Can we separate? No. All right, remind me next week to talk about what I explained earlier about. What was it? Separation. Separate what from what? Okay? Right. I need to, I need to let you go now so you can go and join the other server. Right. Let us take a moment then to transfer the mates that we have all acquired. In making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching. And with immense gratitude, let us transfer these maids to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer the maids we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transmit to, to Guru Swami Nuhansi as well as all the teachers resident at the monastery as well as all the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others and inviting others to join them. And may through the power of these maids, if any of them have been born in the woeful plane, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. So, so, so. There is also transfer merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those of you who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May to the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sad, sad, sad. Let us take a moment to transmit to our mothers, fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped, supported and assisted us along the way. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sad, sad, sad. 
Let us also take a moment to transfer many to the devas, brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Samudha Sasana. Let us transfer many to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may through the power of these merits their prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. So, so, so. Let us take a moment to transmit to our ancestors who have predeceased us, to all those who have been families, friends and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara, and to those who helped, supported and assisted us along the way. Let us transmit to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation, and may all those who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. Let us transmit to those who have lost their lives in natural calamities such as the tsunamis, earthquakes, landslides, forest fires, pandemics, and so on, reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey in Sansara. Let us take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired to them, and may through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. There is all resolved that may through the power of all the blessings that we have, blessings of the merits that we have all acquired today, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of Arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may through the power of all the myths we have acquired today, you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become an Arahatun Mahanse or an Arahatteranin Mahanse in this life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. Members of the Mahasangha will now transfer their blessings to you. Ragaginnamidatnva Deshaginnamidatnva Mohaginnamidatnva Nibbana parana sukhayan Sukhita taravetnva Nibbana parama sukhayan Sukhita taravetnva Mamada siyalu loka siyalu satnvayo Nibbana parama sukhayan Sukhita taravetnva Nibbana parana sukhayan Sukhita taravetnva Nibbana parana sukhayan Sukhita taravetnva Raga gini niveva Desha gini niveva Mohagini Niveva Nivansapa Labeva Nivansapa Labeva Nivansapa Labeva Tunduangi, Suisi Ananta Mahaguna Belen, Silok, Silosatheum, Nibana Paramasukin, Sukitaravitva, Sadu, Sadu, Sadu.